it's Angelina Pratt, your host of Empathetic Witness, conversations with Indigenous peoples from across Canada, and I am having a conversation with Justice Harry Laforme, the first Indigenous justice appointed to the appellate court in Ontario. Now, without further ado, here is Harry. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> oh, there you are. I can nice see you. Nice to see you. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to see you. Yeah, a long time, eh? Oh, I know. It has been forever. For, Seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> mm. None of us look the same. You do. <laughs> You look the same. Yeah. Well, you do too, you know. Your glasses is different, but other than that, you know. (laughs) And and hair. And hair. hair. (laughs) But these things happen when we age. It's actually a gift (laughs) that we change because that means we're we're living life, right? So um so Harry, I um I actually did a a a promo before we before you got on, just to introduce you, but I would, I often like my guests to introduce themselves because in that way you can highlight what is important to you and in the way you want to be addressed. And I'm not sure, I I was going to ask you when we talked last, if you want me to refer to you respectfully as Justice LaForme or is Harry fine? Harry. Harry, please. Harry, please. Okay, Harry, please. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go ahead. You want me to introduce myself? Yes, please. Okay. I'm uh, Harry LaForme. I'm a Anishinaabe, a member of the Eagle Clan of the uh, Mississaugas of uh, the Credit First Nation. Uh, I come from a long line of chiefs, none of which was me, mind you, uh, because I took another path, and my path was law. Uh, before law, I um, I chaired two commissions. One was the Indian Commission of Ontario. The other was the uh, Specific Claims Commission, where I met Angela. And, and uh, that lasted two years. Well, it lasted. It's still in existence now. It's a a legal entity right now. But at the time, uh, I was there for two years. And then I got appointed to the court, uh, Superior Court of Justice. And I became a trial judge. uh, And I did that for uh, about 11 years. And then I was the first Indigenous uh, person to be appointed to an appellate court in Canada's history. And uh, that was in 2004. And I lasted 14 years on the bench when I had enough. I figured uh, 25 years as a judge. And I, I'll be specific here. I There, there were just a lot of issues um, that had evolved and were going on within, I'll call, Indian country. And uh, that really got my interest. So I retired early. I retired three years before I had to from the Court of Appeal. And I went to work with Ophias Clear Townsend where I've been involved in uh, 
two pretty major projects. I had, uh, first of all, I was lead counsel on um, the water class action for First Nations. And secondly, I did a um, consultation process for the Department of Justice. Minister Lametti uh, appointed me to conduct consultations on an independent review uh, process for wrongfully convicted persons. So uh, that was tabled last year, and we'll see what happens. Anyways, those are that's that's a brief sketch of what I've done. I've also been gifted a lot of eagle feathers over the years from my own people, and uh, the, the, that's the as you know, uh, that's the best gift you can get. So yes, uh, I'm really happy about that. Wow. Well, I want to just pause and to acknowledge your accomplishments because it's not I mean it's not often we really sit with the accomplishments like just take a minute and just just think about what it is you have accomplished and I know in your career you've also done you've you've been part of major decisions that change the fabric of Canada and well, my, my wife says the world. <laughs> yes, ex the world, exactly. Well, specifically the same-sex um, uh, decision, which, yeah. you know, Canada was the first. You were the yeah. first, you know, to be part of that. And and it's not easy. I mean, I just, over the weekend, I, I reread that decision that mm. of the same-sex marriage. And it really is quite interesting because... You had to consider so much. I mean, you oh, had to yeah. consider the legislative body. You had to consider the climate, the uh, Canadian climate, and uh, and it's it was a difficult decision. I mean, maybe not a difficult decision, but there was a lot of moving parts you had to consider. Yeah, and I might say um, now that you mention it, you know, you had to consider the attitude of Canada. Mm -hmm. and, and and the the people that live in Canada and at the time uh, there was about eighty percent of Canadians didn't agree with the decision mm -hmm. and um, I just felt that Canadians were the kind of people that when when they learn something they they want to remedy it mm -hmm. and, and I wrote the decision like that and. Um, and my colleagues agreed. They basically agreed. They they all wanted to write a little bit of something on their own. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was okay. But within a year after that decision, just to give you an example of how correct I was in my assessment of the Canadian public, um, within a year, that whole notion um, flipped on its head. It was now 80% didn't care, didn't mind it had absolutely no problems with equal mm. marriage and t only 20% were the other way. So that's Canada. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly, you know, it's like got me thinking as I was reading, you know, what the, the thinking, you know, Canadians thinking and how approachable or acceptable they were with the idea of, this now being something that was legalized in Canada. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I say bravo to you because it was a major, major change. 
Well, thank you. There, there's a couple of stories around that if you'd like to hear them. I would, yes. Oh, um, after the decision, um, uh, the um, I went to a um, an appeal judges conference in New York City. It was at NYU, and it, it's put on annually, and it's for new appointments to the courts of appeal. And uh, I had been a, a judge on the court of appeal for at least a year. And but that was that was okay. Uh, I went to the conference, and the conference was basically run by a black uh, judge, appellate court judge from Massachusetts. Hmm. So as we're going along, I asked the man. I said, "Excuse me, but when you thought of the issues and what had to be decided in this equal marriage case." I said, did you substitute black for gay and lesbian and, and, and that? I mean, did you? And he said, yes, of course I did. And it was, you know, that made the job a little easier. You understand fairness. You understand what goes into equity issues and you understand. And I was really pleased because I did that. I did that with, with Aboriginal people when I wrote the decision. And I always said it wasn't that hard, at least. You're you're quite right. There was a lot of subtleties and nuances to it, but from from the perspective of whether it was the right thing to do, that was easy mm. because I had lived that life where we fought for that and constantly fight for that, and so that was easy. But it was interesting to find that um, uh, a black judge in Massachusetts who had written the same decision um, in Massachusetts and and uh, made it e- equal there too. And then one other thing I was, I I was at a, um, uh, in Seattle, Washington, my family went uh, there for vacation with my son and my, my wife and my, um, myself. And it was gay pride week, Mm -hmm. which I, which I didn't know. (laughs) And we were in a hotel right by the needle park, whatever that is, you know, where that, that and they go up there. And I was walking through and I went over to one of the the um, uh, kiosks and it was a legal uh, kiosk. And it was all about the fight for equality rights for gays and lesbians in uh, the United States. And it's all different, as you can imagine, with the, the state laws and stuff like that. So they have a really they had a really big fight going on. And we got to talking and this woman said, do you know anything about this? You sound like you do. And I said, yes, we had that decision. And I said, we got it written. She said, did did you sit on the court? And I said, yes, I did. (laughs) And I told her my name and she knew it. She knew it because they were, they were, they reference it all the time down there, that case. And she said, and she got really excited and she was really all a a tither. And she called, um, up all these people that fight this issue all the time down there. And they came and they asked me uh, if I would be a, a, a co-grand marshal in their parade the next day. <laughs> and I told them, no, I said, that's, that's for you to do. And I said, that's, I, I don't want to interrupt. I'm, I'm glad that you recognize <laughs> it. And that's great. And I, that was really lovely. And I've often wondered why why I didn't. I should have said yes, and I would have I would have been a grand marshal in a gay pride parade. But <laughs> I I didn't, but only because it was I thought I was interfering. So yeah, that was, 
That's yeah. some of the stories. Isn't that great? It is absolutely great. I think that, um, well, to be invited to be a grand marshal yeah. in that parade, that's a huge honor too, right? Yeah, I think that so. Is, that is really huge. So yeah. let us just segue a little bit back to mm -hmm. indigenous rights. Yeah. Um, you've also made some really, um, you know, um, really important decisions in indigenous rights. And mm -hmm. the one that I'm thinking of is the um, hunting rights and yeah. um, looking at um, the um, shelter, like sheltering under another indigenous territory. Right. Can you just explain that a little bit to us? Yeah, there were, there, there was two, there were two um, different treaties, mind yes. you. And, um, they were the names of the case are R.V. Mashaki. Yes. One of them. And then the other one was Shipman. Yeah, Shipman. And so those were those were two separate cases and they were being heard at the same time. Um, and they were separate appeals and they were had dealt with separate treaties. And it was all about sheltering under other treaties. And could a guy from southern Ontario, uh, I think it was from Walpole, go yeah. up and 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 hunt and fish in treaty number nine territory under the rights of that treaty. Um, and the other one was uh, something similar to that. Yeah. And uh, in both cases, I said, yes, of course they could. And I, mm -hmm. you know, you have to go through the rationale, but the interesting part of that story is when uh, the lawyers came in, I knew a lot of them, but I hadn't seen them in 20 years at that point. And, um, the, um, the, the chair of the panel, because I don't know if you know or not, when you sit in the Court of Appeal, you sit as three-member panels usually. The senior judge sits in the middle, and mm -hmm. then the next senior sits on the right side, and then the next senior, the, the low man on the, as they say, on the totem pole, <laughs> uh, sits on the left. Well, uh, uh, I was on the left, I believe, because... Uh, I wasn't uh, the the other judge on that panel was sworn in the same time I was, but she was sworn in first, so she gets the the right <laughs> side of the panel. Anyways, uh, the the arguments were all in, and all kinds of questions were being asked, and everything like that. And finally, all the arguments were in, and uh, we go out into the retiring room because that's what you usually do. You know, you decide, you hear the case, and you. Um, adjourn for a few minutes. You go into what we call the retiring room. That's where we work. And quite often we just sit there and write out our decisions at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, but this one we knew we were going to write on. We were going to write on both of them. And um, the uh, my colleagues both said, you have to write this, Harry. You have to write these decisions because we don't really know what what it's all about. And, and I think that's a good thing. I, I, I mean, you talk about diversity on the court and why yeah. you should have it. But that's a good thing, you see, because we were living. My two colleagues said, I understand the, the concepts and everything like that mm -hmm. and the law. You understand living with that and you understand what that's like living with that. So you write it. You write the decisions and we'll support them. And they said both at both instances that they they agreed with my analysis that they should be able to shelter under these treaties. 
and uh, that's how that's how I got to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really. Which, which goes to show you, I think it does two things. That that particular case does two things. It shows you why diversity is so important, mm. and and why lived experience has something to do with your sense of justice and what it means. And so there was a classic example of why uh, you should have diversity on the court. And the second thing was, of course, um, you're persuasive, you know, like they know it. You can be persuasive then. And you don't just look at it as some kind of a um, law written in a book or somewhere Mm -hmm. like that. You actually know people and see people. And that's what my colleagues saw. They saw somebody that understood what that was like. So that was really good. Yeah, that I mean, I I really enjoyed reading it because it, you know, those two cases that you were mentioning, I mean, in what and I often thought about that and it answers that later on in the decision that I thought, what about if somebody because one of them, it's the the facts are somebody married into a First Nation and uh, whether or not whether or not their rights you know, were transferable to him, right? And it yeah. makes sense because in traditionally, I mean, I by the time the, you know, my parents were hunting and trapping, yeah. I was really young. So I didn't know uh, really the nuance behind it, but my, my father would go actually north and actually he trapped as far north as Churchill. Yeah. And and we're from Treaty Eight, right? Yeah. And so I kind of, <laughs> I kind of wondered. I wonder if he was even allowed to do that. But he, well, yeah. he did. He, he he might not have been at the time. But, yeah, uh, but he was but, invited, yeah. and they talked a little bit about being invited, right, in the territory yeah. to join a hunt or yeah. to be able to to hunt in someone else's territory. Well, that's what I said. You have you, you, yeah, one of the decisions was that you had to be invited and you had to consider certain things and whatnot. Yes. But that was only for the First Nations protection. You know, it was yes. to consider the First Nation and respect respect their treaty rights. And they just don't give them away. You know, you got to. Yeah, yeah. it has to mean respect. something. Yeah. It, you know, it means something, right? That's right. So that's I think right. that's the important part of these decisions is so many people have thought deeply about every word in it. So you're looking at how the word impacts others so that it means something. And if, if that, if that wasn't taken into consideration, when you look at wording, and I often like to look at wording, even, even in this, in my podcast, I look at how people speak and the wording we use because it means something, you oh, know. It, it certainly does. That's, you know, we talk about political correctness or anything like that, but yeah. um, you're right. Words matter, you know, and you can you can really hurt people with your words, and you can't take them back. No, no, no. Once they're out there in the universe, they're gone for good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's. Uh, Anyway, I really do. I, I mean, I think that you are a masterful. <laughs> now I'm just, I'm just buttering you up now. <laughs> well, and then, I, and then I wrote another one. Um, the one that I really like, and um, it, it, maybe I'll get you to take the opportunity to read that one as well. We had a case where Tyandonega First Nation. That's our client. Yeah. 
And the chief and the band council were having a dispute with one of its members. They had won in court. Mm. They didn't know how to get satisfaction on their judgment. Yeah. And they, they were awarded damages. They were awarded all kinds of damages. So the question was, can we seize the certificates of possession? Are certificates of possession available to us as indigenous, you know, uh, part of the reserve and part of yeah. the governance of the reserve? And what I didn't like about it was it was um, all um, Indian Act. The right. whole thing was decided by the Indian Act. And both lawyers and both parties agreed that it should be. It has to be decided by the Indian Act. So um, my colleagues said, you you can, I wanted to write about it. And they said, you can write about that case. Go ahead and we'll sign. We'll sign on with you. We'll agree with whatever you say. And so I I took that case. And why I like it is because I talk about everything around the decision. I talk about Mm. The inequities of the Indian Act. I talk. I talk about how it was imposed on Indigenous people, and I really, I really try to say all the reasons why the Indian Act stinks and it's no good and it should be outlawed and all these other things. Yeah. And then, of course, I go sliding in. But of course, I have to decide it on the basis of this. So, mm-hmm. and I and I, I I found for the chief and council, of course, because. They have to have a way to satisfy their judgments. And I, I thought it was only fair. Anyways, that's a ruling. And yeah. that, that's a good case. You'll find it. And it's called um, uh, Mohawks Bay Quinty and uh, Miracle. Oh, yeah. Okay. Chief Miracle. Yeah. 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 Well, he was the chief at the time. Yeah, uh, he's but, still a chief. <laughs> yeah. And. The, the the reason I liked it, and it got written up by a couple of law magazines, you know, wrote it up and everything like that. And and I think they were talking about um, the, the other side of it, you know, what was my thoughts on the Indian Act, because yeah. they were pretty brutal. Yeah. And uh, uh, so if you're looking for something that you'll enjoy reading, yes, that's, that's a good one. I will. Yeah, I, I will definitely read that because it gives the context. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and once you, I mean, because we all Indigenous people, most of us feel the Indian Act constrains us, you know, yeah. and it really limits things that we want to do. And, you know, we've had for years ask for permission because of the Indian Act to do certain things that right. we never are sovereign. No. Right? Because we're restricted. That's the attitude they took. And of course, that's all contrary to what the, the uh, belief is today, at yes. least from government, they say this. Uh, that's the hard part. The hard part, the easy part was saying it. Yeah. We, we, we now accept that Indigenous people had the inherent right to self-government. And then the, the complications come in after that, you know, yeah. all of that. And that's recognized in thir- Section 35 of the Constitution, which would theoretically mean that the Indian Act shouldn't apply. If somebody wanted to challenge it on the basis of that, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure they could. Yeah. Not to mention there's all kinds of rights violations in it. <laughs> yes, yeah, no kidding. And it, and, it, and it could be. I suspect it could be challenged and, and done away with today. Yeah. 
Well, we'll see who's brave enough to do it. Well, there's a there's a there's a flip side to that, mm. you know, unfortunately. And the flip side is we we have lots of reserves. We have lots of First Nations in in our country that rely on that to survive. They rely on that for relationships and yes. they rely on that for governance of their community. And they've been they've been doing that for over 200 years, you know, and now all of a sudden to just sweep that away and take it. Mm. You can't do it. We've got to, we got to find a way to gradually get the First Nations government in, into um, the hands of the people without mm-hmm. the Indian Act, but it's got to be done gradually or they wouldn't survive. Yes. Yeah. Any of them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know there's, you know, the whole issue with the Indian Act is a conversation in, in itself. And a lot of First Nations, I was just speaking to, you know, another lawyer on that, you know, she she argued the Pauli case. Um, yeah. But we were talking about, you know, just the sovereignty of First Nations and how the courts, you know, actually force First Nations to defend their rights when they it's already existing, but we are forced to go to courts and and end yeah. up with a long, expensive battle. Yeah, and and you have to, you have to prove that historically this was a part of your tradition, yes. and culture, and your laws. And uh, yeah, but, yeah. But the, the, the interesting thing about the inherent right to self government, though, is that it's a statement of law and it's not, you don't have to prove that inherent right to self-government. Right. You might have to prove the components of it, but the rights itself the, the, that you have are recognized. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And affirmed in the constitution mm-hmm. <laughs> under That's section right. 35. But yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I mean, we've got, a, we've come a long way in the last 40 odd years. We've well, still got a know, long way to go. It's interesting that you say that because I've done all these, um, I think, exciting and, and, and wonderful things, and I've enjoyed every second of it along the way on my journey. Mm. Uh, but the one thing I, I often do is I look, I look and I say, what have you really done? You know, and you look at yourself and you, and you sort of ask yourself, what have you really done? Mm. And um, have you helped and have you moved that needle? And, and I don't, I, I sometimes get really, really saddened by the fact that I don't feel like I have, I don't feel like I've moved that needle at all because everything that we used to, when I started mm-hmm. in the, in the seventies, I started this and, and here I am in 2022 wondering what I was supposed to be doing. And, and I'm thinking our, our communities are no different. Our, our men are still going to prison at a, at an alarming rate. I mean, it's unconscionable. Our women, 50% of the inmate population over 50%. I mean, we only represent all indigenous people represent less than 4% of the population of Canada. Yeah. You know, and here we are, we're, we're overrepresented in prison. We still are the poorest of the poor. We still are the unhealthiest of all those things, the most uneducated. I mean, residential schools didn't end their thing until 1992. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's real. I mean, I, I really hear in your voice, you know, like what, 
residential school has done to the population of First Nations. And I mean, it, this would be an excellent segue into the next, as we slide into, you know, reconciliation and residential sure. schools. Let's, let's go there. Um, sure. I mean, when we look at reconciliation, we look at, you know, how do we reconcile the, pri- the past with the present? You know, um, and I think for, and it has to work both ways. It has to come from the Indigenous people and the non-Indigenous people. You know, to reconcile, you need two parties together to form yeah. a, I guess, a compassionate conversation with each other, right? right? So I'll leave it to you. How do you see reconciliation? You know, with your experience on the bench, yeah. with your, um, you know, so it talk about, you know, with the view of the law, being a judge, and how reconciliation can work in this day and age. Okay. Um, first thing, I, one of the things that I, I, I was one of only three trial judges at the time when I, when I first got on the court, I was, there was three, three indigenous judges in all of Canada and two of us got sworn in together. So that meant there was only one out there and he was from Quebec. So at that level of court. Um, And then in 2004, I was uh, appointed to the uh, court of appeal. And I was the very first and only Indigenous person to sit on the Court of Appeal. And I sat there for 14 years wondering when the next person was going to get there. And they never did while I was there. Never did. Now they have Jonathan George, who is, uh, I suspect, will be a really good judge. And they they have, um, I, I can't remember his first name, Justice Marchand, in BC is another one who is on the courts of appeal there. And um, so they, they have each other, they can communicate. And I know it's, a, it, it's for us, it's a lonely existence when, when nothing that you lived is like anything your colleagues did. You have nothing to talk about in that regard, except the differences. And I didn't want to do that. So I spent a lot of time alone. Um, on the Court of Appeal. So when you talk about um, reconciliation, there it is. There, Don't let us get us in the positions of power, put us in these positions of authority and all of us, but not you, you don't satisfy the requirement by one. You haven't performed your duty when you just say, oh, Harry Laform, we've got an Indigenous person on the Court of Appeal, so we don't have to worry about it for 14 years, 14 years. Uh, well, it was more, longer than that because uh, um, Justice George uh, was uh, appointed two years after. Len Marchand was appointed right after another year, at least, when I was there. So I, I would say you got to you, you give them company, you know, but here's the other thing you have to do. When you put these in these positions of authority, lived experience matters. You know, my generation is going to be the last one that actually knows what it means to live under the complete authority of the Indian Act. The complete authority. Nobody does this anymore. 
But when I was young man growing up on the reserve, the Indian agent used to come in to the reserve and he ran the council meetings. He set the agenda. He told you what you could talk about and everything. They don't do that anymore. When you went off to the reserve, my dad, I know, I heard the stories. When when my dad went off the reserve, he had to get permission. Had to get permission to go off the reserve. And then it was for a time, a set time, and he had to come back. I knew when my dad, when my dad was a young man, if he went to school, he had to give up his uh, status as an Indian. You know, all these things, the complete, complete domination by by the colonial structure was something that I lived with. And they're going to lose that. We're going to lose that. We're going to we're going to get people that have only read about it. And, you know, it's like it's like um, uh, Michelle Obanzawin on the, the Supreme Court. You know, she's our appointment to the Supreme Court. Well, she's she's young. She, she's, she doesn't know what it's like to live on a reserve and be dominated and have to live under that structure and that, um, you know, and any of those. Her experience in law and the experience in, in, in fighting the good fight, I'll say, you know, when you talk about indigenous organizations. I worked for an indigenous organization. That's how I got involved in this in 1971. My grandfather got me in into the Association of Iroquois Allied Indians. That's how I got started. So it's we're talking about lots of years, and they were different. The issues were different. So that, that's got to be part of it. Reconciliation isn't just a group hug, and it's not them saying, we're going to do this about reconciliation. Reconciliation is about discussing all the time, discussing partnership, real partnership. That's what reconciliation means. Education. What are you going to do about education? Well, let's bring in the indigenous people and let them tell us what they need and we'll discuss it and etc. It all has to be done by negotiation and, and, and accommodation. That's, that's what they're saying it is. And so you have to do all of these things by, you can't just think it in your head because they're colonial. They they don't know it, or they do know it, they don't care, or they are what they are. They simply are what they are. And that's not bad or anything, except they used it for evil in the, in the past. And you can. So what you tell them is, your thinking is different than my thinking. Your thinking is different than my dad's thinking. You're diff it's different than my brother's thinking. It's going to be different than my son's thinking. You know, and that and that's that's true. And you need that perspective if you're going to reconcile. And so all of those things are are there to be done. And you don't you don't reconcile by saying, oh, well, we'll put indigenous people on the Court of Appeal on the Supreme Court of Canada. But we'll have to have make make sure they speak French. You know, we have to make sure they speak French. That's what that that's that removed me from the from the list. But and I've written an article about this and one of these days it'll get published. Uh, and the article is that is colonialism all over again. That's colonial. In other words, that's like you can be part of our decision making process. But first, you got to be just like us. You got to be like us. You can't do that. And they forget when they 
when they talk about uh, going on to the Supreme Court or any other position like that of of, of responsibility in Ottawa, you, you have to speak French. They when they taught us and they did teach us, it was all their responsibility, all of their responsibility. Did they teach us French? No, they did not. Did they, did they ask us if we wanted to learn French? No, they did not. And now here we are, we're all grown up. We can't speak French because they didn't bother teaching us. And they didn't tell us it was important. And now they tell us we got to speak French. That's wrong. That's that's completely wrong. That's colonialism all over again. It's a good point you, you brought up that they never taught us French. No. Um, they never asked. I, but I do remember in residential school being taught Cree. I'm Dene, not Cree, but I remember them offering some, some of the, the nuns and priests spoke Cree. And I remember, you know, them teaching us Christmas um, songs in Cree. But that's the only time. But you're right. It is, it is to keep us down. You know, you, they wanted to assimilate us, but they didn't want us to be better than them. <laughs> no, they certainly didn't. And, um, and I think it's still that way. Um, you know, I, I, great. I hope, I hope Justice Obanswin grows into the job and I hope she continues to um, uh, involve herself in conversations with with other people, she's got a, a, a long list of friends out there who know her and have have worked with her. And uh, if, she, if she's got to keep that up, and then discussion is what it's all about. You know, you just you've got to got to um, discuss. When I was on the court, unfortunately, as I said, um, I was all by myself, and I didn't have another person to call who knew how to collaboratively write or how the all of the little nuances and subtleties and everything like that uh, that involve appellate work it's different than trial work it's a, it's it's a different a, a different mindset and i didn't have other people to call when i uh, indigenous issues came up or anything like that i had to do it all myself i hope these george and justice marchand know that they've got each other and communicate with each other and ask or call me and ask me. I'm, I'm happy to. Uh, I know that's probably uh, not what the court would want, but uh, I, I don't, I don't think it hurts either. You gotta, you gotta get it right. So uh, my, my thoughts on reconciliation, you know, I, I always thought, um, um, I don't know more had the right attitude, and I think they had the right um, position on that, which is real reconciliation is to give us our government and our lands. You don't give all of Canada back. Obviously, that's not going to happen as much as it should. It's not going to happen. So, like, as long as we get our territory and we get to do what we want with our territory and govern ourselves within that territory, that's that's real reconciliation. That would be real reconciliation to go back to the original treaties mm. where it was, we're going to develop this country uh, together. 
you are going to do your thing. We're going to do ours, the colonial said, and we're going to, we're going to do it that way. You're, we're going to be equal. You've got as much to say and you go over on your side. You do your thing and we'll do our thing and we'll just evolve this country together. And that never happened. You know, that disappeared in the first Indian Act and the colonial teeth that got into our lives and never let us go. And uh, that's what happened. We got to go back to that original deal. I don't know how we do that. I I can think of some things, but yeah. um, it's it's got to that's real reconciliation. I agree. I agree. I mean, you know what I've noticed um, with with my particular band. I'm I'm from the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation in Alberta, mm-hmm. and when I look at some of the policies that that we are governed by, you know, like the um, even the election code. Mm-hmm. You're right. Those were designed by Indian Affairs agents. And yeah. I think, you know, as we go along and we get new chiefs and council, I don't think they recognize the genesis of those documents. Right. They don't know that they were developed by or even if they do know, they don't see how those Indian agents developed those documents to keep us connected to the Indian Act and not to go outside that box. Oh, quite, quite right. They do. And that, that's the thing about, that's what I was getting at when I said, you know, maybe they don't need ill will, but they think about things. They think about answers to questions yeah. from a colonial mindset, yeah. from this control aspect. I know better than you. I can tell you what to do. You have to think about the way I think about things, not the way you do. Your your day is done. And yeah. that's got to be over with. They got to they they have to see Justin Trudeau, bless him. He's a I guess he's a a man that means well. I don't know. Um I wonder sometimes because he says nothing is more important. Nothing has the priority of of the relationship between our government and indigenous people. They're, we're the number one priority. And he says it's built on respect. It's built on those old treaties and the promises made and um, equal partners and nation to nation relationship. Mm. When is the last time you saw a nation to nation relationship? In any of his negotiations with indigenous people, the first thing he did, the first thing he did after he mouthed those words, beautiful <laughs> as they may be, was he went to Alberta, sat with premiers about a pipeline that went through BC. And not one indigenous person was at that table. Mm. That's the nation to nation relationship that he's interested in. That's the number one priority that he's interested in. What does he do? He sets up a, a Supreme Court. Mm. Got to speak French. When he knows, he knows full well that his government was responsible for our education and never taught us French. Never yeah. taught us French. Yeah. So he does all these things and he forgets that these words, you talked about words at the beginning. Mm. They mean something. They are important. 
Well, nation-to-nation relations are important. You don't go off and meet with the premiers and not invite a chief. Mm. You don't do that. Yeah. Well, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, I think, you know, when we look at his, he, you know, the government appointed the the governor general, Mary Simon. And Mm. I was reading something where, a lot of people were criticizing, you know, that her lack of French and, um, but she had a lot of other really great credentials, you know, yeah. and she was, uh, you know, a diplomat, you know, a statesman person, but, you know, like the whole requirement of the French language, like, is it necessary in this day and age? It's not necessary, I don't think. No, it's not necessary. And most most don't speak it to the degree that he, he has insisted upon. Like functionally bilingual, and then he tells you, he de- defines functional in the applications. And then he says, um, but none of these people do that. It, and it's more problematic from the from a uh, Quebec side. Mm-hmm. They uh, are not functionally bilingual. They claim they are and everything like that. I can speak French and everything. Maybe it's a little better today than it was in my day. But none of those judges from Quebec could were you would say were functionally bilingual in English. Yeah, none of them. And the opposite was true. I bet you Moldaver didn't speak French functionally when he left the court finally. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he didn't. Yeah, and yet we're held to the same. Yeah, I mean, to different standards. Yeah, but even we given are. given to the fact that we were never given the opportunity, nope. never, never given a leveling playing field. No. Yeah. We never were. Yeah. Like I say, they were responsible for it. Even today, you go back and you study the education of of uh, in, indigenous people under the government regime, under these colonial authorities and everything like that. Um, they grade up. We we go up to about a grade four, grade four education if mm. we follow the the curriculum and we do everything that they say. And that's and they administered it badly too. They didn't yeah. care. Yeah. We, we, they, we just that the government's never cared about us. And now all of a sudden we have to pay the price for that. Mm. They're asking us to pay that price. Yes, and, and and as you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't. But uh, I tried a couple of times in the various programs that I had. I one with the claims commission. I did it. One on the court. I tried. I tried to to, to learn French the way they wanted to. I just didn't have the time. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I didn't have the ability. Mm. Mm. I didn't have the ability. I mean, I'm, you know, you, you get old and you, you, you don't, <laughs> you know, learning is e- doesn't come as easy. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I was at the commission, you know, they offered me to learn, you know, French yeah. and send me to Gas Bay for six weeks to learn in an immersion. But yeah. we didn't have time. We no, were we so didn't. busy setting up the claims commission yeah. and, scheduling the hearings and everything else. There was yeah. no time to take six weeks 
and go learn another language. <laughs> I know. And I, I actually had a private tutor. Mm. You know, she would, she's supposed to come in every, I, I, I was always breaking my time limits because I, you know, I can't see it today because I got this to do and I had to fly here and I got to go there and everything. I, I never had time. I never had time. I, I canceled more than I went. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's just silly. It's very, very, I mean, it's, it's really horrible. Uh, so I, I want to just move us along. Um, and what I want you, you answered most of the questions I had in my mind, you know, when you went through the, your history. Um, mm. But what I didn't hear was what was your biggest problem with transitioning from being a lawyer to a judge? Like what, what changes did you find the most difficult? Well, um, learning all the different things about law, I'll tell you. I remember that first week I, I was in and I, they, there were all these in criminal court. Mm. And, and there was, they had a process called a sheetment and you have to cheat your bail. And what that really means is somebody hasn't honored their conditions of bail and should you make them pay the bail amount now and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, that was, there was a lot of things like that. There's a lot of different areas of law that you have to learn the, the language of. Every, every area of law has a language and you have to learn that language. Yeah. And that's really difficult. And then you have to learn that you don't advocate for anyone. You have to you have to be an unbiased observer and you have to listen. Listening is, I think, sometimes the most important thing. And um, it, not only do you have to listen, but you got to hear. Yeah. You got to hear what they say. Yeah. And uh, and they were that was always difficult is um, because some of this stuff, you know, you would first learn a couple of years, first couple of years would be really difficult. And I. And I was in an area of law where we had our own language as well, you know, yeah. indigenous law. Mm -hmm. and, um, really quite remarkable that, uh, you know, you learned this, you could do this all the time. And you, you had to you had to rely on your staff a lot. And so for the first couple of years, it was like just getting a grip on on. The, the, the schedule, getting a grip on the kinds of cases you heard, the language that you were going to hear, um, learning the, the lawyers and who were the good ones and who did you, who, who were you not trusting or, you know, who didn't deserve trust. And a, a lot of those things have, had to happen. Well, I'm assuming you also didn't get to pick which, no. which uh, files you wanted to sit on, right? No. They were no. just given yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. You went on a rotation and what was on that list is what you heard. Yes. What was on that list. Now, the difference with the Court of Appeal was, and, and I, I, I really um, hope that um, colleagues who ever get appointed to the bench and things like that will, um, it'll be different. But if you're a tax expert and you're a judge. Yeah. You're on a court of appeal. You're a tax expert. 
if a tax question comes up, you get picked for the panel. They'll come in and tell you, we got tax issues coming up, judge so-and-so. Can you sit on the panel? Are you free to sit on the panel or can you switch? Mm. Um, if it was a family law issue, okay, get the family law expert. Get on there. Uh, commercial. Yeah, do this. Uh, so that's what they did. Not with indigenous. Mm. When they had indigenous appeal coming through, Nobody came to me and said, Harry, we got this indigenous matter coming up and would you sit on it? Why is so, that, do you think? Like, was it just colonial the thinking again? It's, oh. it's, it's that colonial thinking again. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. They just know better. Mm. And the one thing I say, I would say is um, one of the things that, our litigate litigants have to do indigenous litigants. And there's all of them, you know, we're going to court all the time anymore. Yeah. And what we got to do is we've got to ask for the Martians of the world. We got to ask for the Georges of the world when we go in, because that's what the, the other side does. Yes. When it's yeah. a tax question, they say, uh, we'd like a tax to the extent that you can, is it possible for us to have a tax expert on there or is a tax, you know, mm -hmm. our litigants have to learn to do the same thing. Our, if we're taking an indigenous matter to court, we have to ask them. And we have somebody that you feel is qualified that really knows this and understands this case on the panel. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense but often making sense it doesn't you know they don't you know often it's not followed um so that's kind of a good segue into the next question i wanted to ask you how well informed are the judges generally about indigenous issues now not 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 well at all not well at all now the, the, a lot of my colleagues that I had, um, it's like when I when I when, when my two colleagues on Mishaki and Shipman went out into the retiring room, they said, um, "We understand the arguments, but we haven't lived this experience. We don't know all the maybe the necessary things we ought to consider in our minds." and um, but a lot of them don't know that. Uh, uh, if we've got 30, I don't know, 30 some judges on the Court of Appeal now, um, I bet there isn't five of them that have had any kind of experience with Indigenous issues. Mm. And if it is, it's only as a result of having, a, having listened to a case and deciding a case. Right. That's right. their expertise. That's the extent of their expertise. There, there wouldn't be that many. And I would, uh, I don't know what the rest of the, um, I mean, Saskatchewan, I, who you were going to pick a panel or somebody with an expertise in indigenous law, it's probably one that's contrary to what the Indian indigenous people want, you mm. know? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And that's why, we need to have more people who have this lived experience. I had a person call me the other day and said they were on 
a review committee. Every province has them, right? Yeah. Review the candidates that want to be judges. So I said, I said to the to the woman, I said, um, how are our indigenous candidates? Says we have none. We don't have any. Now I know why we don't have any. And the and there's there, there's two reasons. Um, one is they don't think they'll get picked yeah. or even and I would. I don't think those committees are generally down downtown Toronto snobs, uh, or what you would call snobs. Um, they, they have their view of law and how how you should be able to see. They don't look at our experience as being necessarily the same as a lawyer in Toronto who belongs to the advocate society and goes to the bar association meetings and all these. Our people don't do that in law most right. of the time, yeah. I would say. And uh, so they uh, right away don't feel their applications will get considered. Second of all is the application itself is biased. <laughs> they, they can't go. Th- I mean, who has time to go through a 20 page application with questions like, what is your most famous case? Mm. You know, our, our, our indigenous lawyers up north in, 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 in Treaty 3 area, they got all the time, they're in court over and over again. They're constantly running through this, or they, they're different. They, they represent a, 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 an indigenous organization in their usual um, experiences at bargaining tables or something like that. Uh-huh. And they can't answer those questions. They mean nothing to these people that are looking at it. What's the, what's the most famous case that you ever took to the Supreme Court of Canada? Uh-huh. Most of our people would say none. Yeah. 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 We, we, so we can't even get through the application. And I, I also, I mean, I've, I've heard that these lawyers that apply to the put their application in for uh, judicial appointments, um, get somebody to write it for them. They don't have the time. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, I, I, but when she told me that we didn't have any applications, I, I understood it because when I was there and I'm talking about, we'll go back five years now. I was told this government is very serious about indigenous appointments to the mm. court. So can you, this was by my then chief justice who, who, who said he was asked by the government, put together these lists of, give me a list of candidates for the Supreme or for any court, any yeah. court, court of appeal, superior court, whatever. Give me, give me the names and you, you put them together. You put them together. And then he asked me to work on it with him. And I did. I put all this time, called up the people, spoke to the people that I thought would be, make good judges, and I asked them, would you do it? Most of the time they said no, and they told me why. And I said, no, this time they're very serious. They're very serious. I've been asked to do this. They want this list. Mm. You know what happened to it? Not one person got a call. Oh, oh God. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, I had about eight names, at least eight names. Yeah. A couple for the Court of Appeal, a couple for, uh, you know, trial court. 
Not one person got called. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Especially when, you know, predominantly indigenous people end up in these courts and in, you know, these institutions because of, you know, representation. I know. And it's really, really, really sad. Um, So, you know, as we get close to the end, I want to ask you, what have you been thinking about your legacy and what that legacy would be? Um, You know, what, what do you want, you know, young lawyers, young Indigenous people to take from your experience on the bench? Yeah. Um, I would say if, if I, if I were telling young lawyers um, and I have told them, I've said, you, you've got to do this. You've, you've got to, it's not, it's not something that you may necessarily like or anything. I think you will like it though. I think judging is a, is a wonderful experience and gives you an, I mean, when, when you have an opinion on a court of appeal, even if it's, even if it's a dissent, mm-hmm. it's important. Yes. It's important. Yeah. And I've had a lot of those. It's important and it means something and it impacts laws. And so you can, in a way you can influence that way, but most of all, it's because it's going to be around forever we're not going to get rid of Canada. We're not going to have our little fiefdoms in some place where they're by themselves. We might have jurisdictions where um, Indigenous law is. We've got a judge there and something like that. But they'll always, always come through. They're always going to have to be a decision for the Supreme Court of Canada or some appellate decision or something like that. So we're always going to be impacted somehow by Canadian law and the influence of Canadian law. And my comments to them would be, so do it. Go there. We need those fresh thinkers. We need those creative thinkers, especially the ones. Now, I don't know whether they get there or not with the applications the way they are and all this other stuff and the attitudes of the people that review them. But I'm saying that you got to if you get by there, you you just got to take it because. First of all, it's a wonderful life. It, mm. it, it's something wonderful. And I, 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 it probably could have been better if I would have known anybody that I could go and talk to, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It would have been, and, and it probably would have been an even more fulfilling experience for me. But I enjoyed it. I loved having an opinion on things that affected my people, for example. I loved the fact that I could have an opinion. But I, 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 that lived experience is so important. I don't, I don't need indigenous judges that come from downtown Toronto on a court. I don't. I always tell people when you become a judge, be an indigenous judge and not a judge who is indigenous. That's the difference. I want that thinking from that from that lived experience as an indigenous person on a reserve you know mm. uh, encumbered by colonialism and stuff like that in order because that's um when when I got appointed to the court of appeal Erwin Kotler was the justice minister at the time he called me up and he said 
we're going to appoint you to the Court of Appeal. Will you take it? I said, yes. And he said, and I said, why me? Why did you pick me? And he said, Harry, why not you? He said, if anybody knows what justice is, it's somebody who has lived their life with injustice. And that's you. And I say that to the indigenous people. That's why, you know, you don't you don't be afraid. You know, you're not embarrassing anybody except yourself. If you go to them and you say. I'm an indigenous person who grew up on such and such a First Nation reserve. And that's who you're getting. And that's the decisions you're going to get out of that person. That's the thinking I'm bringing to the bench. And they got to be ready to do that. And they will. They will. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's excellent because, um, you know, in the way that is being said, you know, I want an indigenous person, but not a person that is indigenous. Indigenous. You know, like it. there's a huge distinction in that statement. Oh, there is. There yeah. is. I don't want person that's sitting there and saying, I wonder what my colleagues will think of this. I wonder what my colleagues will do. How would they write this or anything like uh-huh. that? I don't care. Yeah. I never yeah. cared. I wrote, I wrote what I wanted to write and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. And if, so if I want indigenous people on the court, that's what I, that's what I want. I want an indigenous judge, not a judge who's indigenous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, when when you deliver those types of decisions, then they're more powerful because you're representing many people, right? So it's not just the representation of one Indigenous judge. It's the representation of people that are Indigenous across Canada. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I always thought I want, I, I want my people to know. Yeah that I care about this stuff. I care about them. I want to make it right for them. Yeah. And I want them to know that. And that's, I always wrote that, wrote that way with that in mind. I, I wanted to, I wanted to make my people, I didn't care about the others. I wanted, I wanted to make my people proud of me. I wanted them to care about me. Well, you've achieved that because I'm certainly very proud of you, Harry. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I've worked alongside you. I'm yeah. glad that, I, I know you, and I'm especially grateful for you accepting my invitation to speak on this podcast today. Oh, my um, pleasure. And I want to leave you with, um, if you have anything that we haven't said that you would like to say to people out there. No, you, you actually covered it with that last question. You know, that was a that was a pretty, pretty important point and that I wanted to make that at some point through the conversation. But um, you 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 drew it out of me. So that was excellent. But I, I, I would say, you know, the, the law and every aspect of the law impacts our lives. We may not want it. Mm. We may not even like it, but it does. It does. Mm. Our people are going to jail at an alarming rate. They're going there. So we need judges that understand their lives and can consider their lives. We need prosecutors up there that in the northern regions that can that can understand what that's all about and everything like that and do the right thing. Mm. We need that. And and it 
fine. You, you don't like the colonial law? Our, our people are going to go into jail under the colonial law at an alarming rate. We got to stop it. And that's going to be true of almost everything we do. Mm. Everything we do. It, it's, it's, we live in a colonial Canada. And even if we got our own parts carved out, yep. we still have to care about theirs because it still impacts our lives. Yeah. And that's why we got to do that and become familiar with it. Judge, judging lawyers, judges, all of it. Yes. Yeah. No. That that's a perfect way to end this podcast. It's it's empowering because you're recognizing what is, you know, yes. without looking at, um, you know, like a utopian idea of what you know indigenous know. could live under. I mean, this is the reality. We live oh. in a colonial Canada. Yep. And the policies are developed by the colonial system that govern who we are, you know, whether right. it's locally, provincially, or federally. And that's, that's right. where we are. So let's get empowered people to help look at this next phase, the next 20 years yep. or whatever, and make changes, real changes. I, 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 I think we've got the people out there, the young people out there, that, that are going to do this. I mean, I hear, hear from Andre Bear, I see some of the posts that he does on LinkedIn and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of him. I'm, yeah. I'm, a lot of those young people get on there. Um, one lady by the name of Blondin, who uh, she does remarkable things. And I just, I'm all for that. I'm all for it. Well, that's what we need to do. We need to build each other up and raise each other. And yep. support each other. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's right. And that's like that, like that Supreme Court judge, um, Obonsuin, Justice Obonsuin. Um, we've we've got to we've got to be there for her when she when she needs us. We've just yeah. got to be. Yes, exactly. We need to do it. I think it's a responsibility. Yeah, to, I think so. To too. be there for yeah. each other, it really okay. is. Well, I I couldn't agree more. All right. Thank you so much, Harry. Oh, miigwech. Chrissy <laughs> Cho. <laughs> oh, and it was, it, it was wonderful seeing you again, uh, Angelina. It uh, brings back fond memories, really good ones. And uh, th those were great times. I must say, I really, I miss those times. And even still, like 30 years later. Yeah, yeah. I know. And I, I make a reconnection with an old friend, and I'm very, very happy about that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, enjoy your, the rest of your day. Okay. And keep in touch. I will. I All will. Right. I certainly will. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye,